And our sermon today will be John chapter 2. We'll be looking at verses 3 through 6. We'll read back in chapter 1, starting there. So open your Bibles with me there. I don't know whether any of you ever took one of those political surveys on Facebook, asking your opinions and telling you what party you most closely align to. Uh, They were an interesting idea. You know, where do I fit into the world of political parties in America where we have a dozen little tiny parties out there? And where do my friends fit and my family fit? You know, it would be nice to really know where people stand. Of course, if you ever took one of those, you find that the questions pretty much are terrible. And at some point, you're faced with a choice. You know, if somebody doesn't want to work, you should A, give them money for a good life, B, kill them. Uh, None of the above, not a choice. You move on. Because they were kind of guiding you and trying to manipulate you to do what they want. But the idea, though, is important. We want to know where we stand, where other people stand. Uh, It's even more important in our religious faith, in the church. Of course, if you were to do a Facebook survey on religion, most likely the person who put it together would not know God. And so the questions would be useless and horrible. Well, here in 1 John, in the second chapter, God actually gives us, through John, three questions, three tests to determine really our place. Are we with Christ or are we against him? Uh, Now, the people who walk apart from God are going to reject these questions. They're not going to like them at all because... Like the political question I just gave you, it doesn't give them the choice they want. It's worship God or despise God. No, 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 I want to do my own thing and be acceptable. And so they'll hate it. But these tests really show who in the visible church has a new heart, who's been born again, and who's just at best a cultural Christian who doesn't know the Lord. Uh, These tests are not just for other people, though. They're really for us. You know, assurance of our salvation is something that's very hard for most people to come to. And these tests, rightly understood, really help us to have that assurance, and they help us to grow in that insurance. Now, you might ask, how do tests help you grow in assurance? Well, if you know the questions and you know the standard, you can train yourself to godliness, to do better on when you consider the test, just like you do in real life. So what are the tests? First one that we'll look at this week, do we obey his revealed will? Chapter 2, verses 3 through 6. Second test, do we have true biblical love? Verses 7 through 11. Then there are a couple of digressions before we get to, do we have really right doctrine? particularly about Christ, verses 18 to 27. So this morning, we'll be considering John's test, do we obey his revealed will? Do we walk as Christ walked? Before we look at that, let us ask the Lord to bless in prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we do pray, Lord, for your blessing on our brief study of your word this morning. As we consider, Lord, all the wonderful things it has to say to us and how we live according to it, 
and how we may know that we have eternal life, how that we may know that we walk with you, how we may have that great comfort in our lives, and how we may be assured that we draw nearer and nearer to you in our life. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'll start reading in chapter 1, verse 5 of 1 John. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing you these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the whole sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. And whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Whoever says, I know him. That is the claim every Christian is really making. We're saying, I know Christ. If you belong to Christ, you have a relationship with him. He is your Lord and your Savior. And many people will say that. At least they will say that they know him. Well, we talked about this back in chapter 1 quite a bit. There are many religions and many sects that claim knowledge from God, of God. Uh, many of them claim their knowledge apart from Scripture. They have revelations. They have other books. They have other ideas, and they claim they know him. And John here is really answering all of them. To know Christ is to be born again, to have a new heart, to have a new life. That's what we're looking at here. And especially here, it's about keeping his commandments. Not just an outward form, but from the heart. The word used here for keeping the commandments in Greek, means to carefully attend to something, to take care of it or to guard it. So we're looking at his commandments, we're carefully taking care of them, guarding them, so that we're obeying them, being careful to walk in what he has commanded us to do. And so there's the test. Do you obey him from the heart? Yes? Good. No? Then you don't know. It's that harsh. Your claim of being a Christian is false. You're a liar. The truth is not in you. If you say you know God, and yet you're not willing to keep his commandments. I came home earlier this week, 
And my wife, we went, had the TV on with John MacArthur doing a conference. And in the conference, he just happened to be speaking about two false teachings that I wanted to talk about this week. So I sat down and I listened to the second half of it. Uh, it was interesting. He had a lot of good things to say. And clearly, he's researched these false teachers quite a lot further than I'm willing to. I was mulling over these things, and he had two errors. He had them in a different order than I would do them. The first error is what he called non-lordship salvation. I think we've all heard of it. It's where you can take the Lord as your Savior, but not as your Lord. In other words, you can go on living your life of sin. You can live exactly the way you lived before you were saved and still be saved. It reminded me, when I was listening to him, about that guy in the movie it was the mummy this guy the mummy comes out and he's he's like pulling up holy symbols and reciting prayers in each religion and you know there are a lot of people out there who say oh you know you want to go to heaven you have to say this prayer well okay i'll say the prayer that covers the way just in case there really is a god and he really was does save people and that's as far as their religion ever goes no new life the proponents of this system call it free grace. Uh, opponents call it cheap grace and easy believism. It varies really from group to group and from teaching to teaching. Uh, MacArthur was listing some of them by name, some teachers, but the teachings vary so much and it, it honestly it varies day by day and if you read through some of their papers on you know, professing their faith, the ideas change in the middle. It's very confusing. It's worldly doublespeak. It's hard to really call them on anything because they say all kinds of random things. But the basic idea is you can be saved and still live your old life. And someday, maybe in the future, maybe if you want to, you can take him as Lord and start living for him. And then he'll be even happier. But as long as you've you know, taking them as your savior, said the prayer, come down and sat on the hot seat, whatever the case may be, you'll be saved. They suggest that this faith is a one-time decision, a mere mental assessment of the bare facts about Christ. You know, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you're saved. That's all you need. You don't need a new life after that. You don't need to do works for your salvation after that. You're good. Quoting Romans 10.9. You know, you've been delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom you have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. You're good. You're safe, they say. And that's all they require of salvation. You can enter the kingdom of heaven while living the life of somebody in the kingdom of Satan. That's their belief. However, that's not the Bible's teaching. Not just John, but Paul is very firm on this. Ephesians 2, the first five verses, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, and once you once walked, now you can't walk that way anymore, but you were dead in your trespasses and sins, and once you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. He's not at work in the sons of God. 
among whom we all once lived in our passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. All mankind is under God's wrath and curse. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love which you loved us, even though we were dead in trespasses and sins, made us alive with Christ. By grace have you been saved. What's the point? Well, we were living like those people, and now we have been saved, and we have been made alive. We have this new life. Paul talks about that more in Ephesians 4, 17 and following. He says, I say this, and you testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They're darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorances in them due to the hardness of their hearts. They become callous. They give themselves up to sensuality, greed, and practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned in Christ. Assuming you've heard about him and are taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus. And so now he tells us what it means to be a Christian. Put off the old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. And be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. You know, salvation is about turning from that old to the new because you've been made new. You've been made alive in Christ. He goes on in Colossians 3, 5 and following to say, put to death what is of the earthly nature in you, spiritual, sexual immorality, impurity, passions, evil desires and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. How can a believer think that he walks with God if he's living and doing things that the wrath of God is coming upon him for? In these two you once walked, he said, when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Put away anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another. Seeing that, and this is the key, you have put off the old self with its practices. Put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. When you were saved, you put off the old self and put on the new, which is now being renewed in the image of your creator. Romans 12, 1 and 2, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercy of God, present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That by testing, you might discern what is the will of God and what is good and acceptable and perfect. And so we cannot just continue living our old life and think that we are now saved, that we can be saved without taking Christ as Lord because of this great transformation in our life. Some have argued you have no need to be transformed to be saved. That if you want to be transformed, you do that sometime later. Right now, just say the prayer and I can check you off in my book. I remember, I forget who it was, was talking, I think it was Pastor Len, talking about some Baptist uh, his church he visited when he was traveling for Bob Jones, who talked about how many thousands of people in this town he had saved. He had like a dozen in his church. 
And he demonstrated his technique. He bullied and harassed the person until they agreed to say the sinner's prayer, and then they parted company. Now, they're saved. Why? Well, because I wanted to check them off in my book. But that's it. There's no new life. I think these teachings that I'm talking about here, this non-lordship salvation, this salvation without taking Christ as Lord, without transforming your life, is something that's been around since John's day. And John is rather fiercely condemning it here. They're the primary target. There is, as they say, as the preacher says, nothing new under the sun. In John, 1 John 1.6 that we read a few weeks ago, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. If you say you have fellowship with him, you're saying you're saved, you're part of the church, you're a believer, but you walk in darkness, you're not walking with God, you're a liar. There's no hope for you. And here in verse 4 which, that we're talking about, you say, I know him, but you don't keep his commands. You're a liar. The truth is not in you. According to John, he's laid down the groundwork here, and he's calling it out now. If you don't obey Christ as Lord, you don't know him. You know, you don't know him, you're not saved. It's not an optional second thing that comes to the Christian, but it is the result of becoming the Christian. If you don't obey him, you don't know him, you're not saved, period, end of discussion. Walking in sin means that you're walking apart from God. Now, if walking in sin means unbelief, do we then need to be perfect, you might ask? You must therefore be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, Jesus says in Matthew 5:48. John says in 1 John 3:6. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him nor known him. Now we'll look at that verse when we get there, chapter 3, but if you're curious, you can look at verse 4 of that chapter to get the context and understand what he's really talking about. Now these groups, excuse me, uh, these groups teach that a Christian can reach a state of holiness. This is the second set of errors. That we can cease from sin. That some actually go so far as to say that's necessary for your salvation. If you haven't become perfect before you die, you don't go to heaven. Uh, many of them advocate that Jesus somehow canceled original sin and corruption. That we're now a blank slate again. We talked about that before. And that now we're able to then perfectly obey him. But John has answered these people already. Right? He's, he's not making random statements here. He's building an argument. And he builds his argument back in chapter 1, verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Oh no, Jesus took all my sin away. I have no sin. No, you're deceiving yourself. If we say we have not sinned, we make him be a liar and the word is not in us. Chapter 1, verse 10. James says in James 3, 2, we looked at this before, we all stumble in many ways. Now, we're not able to be sinless. Christian perfectionism is denied by these verses. And yet, living in our sins is out. 
perfectionism is out. So where does that leave us? What does it mean to keep his commandments? Well, first and foremost, John has laid down his argument leading up to this point, And he says that walking with God, knowing God, is walking in the light, is living in Christ, and is obeying him. Knowing God really involves us having a new heart in that transformation of life. We've often looked at Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27. I want to mention it again to remind us. Uh, he says, I will sprinkle water, clean water on you, and you shall be clean from your uncleanness. And from your idols I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart, a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and, key here, and will cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. This is what John is talking about. If we know God, if we have been saved, if he has taken out our heart of stone and given us our heart of flesh, if we've been transformed through the power of the Spirit, then he will cause us to walk in his statutes and be careful to obey his rules. Now, note the order there. God gives us the new heart. God then causes us to be obedient. And as a result of our new heart, of our being born again, we then start to do what God wants. We start to keep the commandments. The test is not, have you done enough to save yourself? The test is, if you've been saved, you will start doing the right thing. You will start obeying God. If we say we're a Christian, we say we're born again, we have that new life. And that new life will be shown to everybody, including us. And we can see it. And this knowledge of God is effective. It is not an optional thing that comes later. But it is the natural outworking of having a new, new heart and having the Spirit of God dwelling in, upon, in us. So how do we reconcile the doctrines that John is teaching? That First, that we all sin. And if we say we don't sin or don't have sin, we're a liar and we don't know God. And then on the other hand, he says, if we walk in sin, we don't know God. Well, it's not hard to explain, but I'm going to leave it to an older theologian. And I'll be translating on the fly because it's in Middle English. But I wanted to quote. He says, the apostle is by no means inconsistent with himself. Since he has before shown that all are guilty before God, he does not understand that those who keep the commandments wholly satisfy the law, meaning perfectly satisfy the law, because no such example can be found in the world or in Scripture. But rather, that they are the people who strive, according to the capacity of human infirmity, to form their life in conformity to the will of God. For wherever Scripture speaks of the righteousness of faith, it does not exclude the remission of sins, but on the contrary, begins with it. In other words, as we look back in chapter 8, you know, what does it say? We've all sinned. If we say we haven't sinned, we don't know God. But what does it say after that in verse 7? 
if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. I'm sorry, that's verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. You know, wherever God talks about the need for obedience, he also talks about the need for repentance and the forgiveness that comes to us. We are not perfectly capable. The difference between walking in darkness and walking in light is not one is having any sin and one is having perfection. The difference is from the heart. You know, are we seeking to obey and glorify God? Are we repentant of our sins? Are we trying to live that new life? Are we taking, putting off the old self and putting on the new self day by day, trying to weaken the sin in our life and in our heart and more and more to obey Christ? That, I think, is the test that is being offered here. People deceive themselves and distract themselves with fantasies of perfectionism or rejecting the entire concept because they can't be perfect. But that's not what we're called to do. He says, but he goes on here. We are not hence to conclude that faith depends on works. For though everyone receives a testimony to his faith from his works, yet it does not follow that faith comes about from works. Or that salvation does, is what he's saying. Faith depends on the grace of Christ alone, but piety and holiness of life distinguish true faith, in other words, the new life lived out, from the false faith. And so man really is tested by his works. And that's how we know whether something has happened or not happened. How do you know whether your uh, roast in the oven is done? You stick a thermometer in and you check the number. If it's too low, you keep cooking. How do you know if the Spirit of God has worked in your life? Look at your works. Are you now a new person in Christ? Are you living? I've met some people who don't remember being converted. They've always lived for God. You know, are you living for God in that way? Repented of your sins, trying to live for what he wants. Testing everything to see whether it's good according to his word, according to him. And so, that's verse 4. Verse 5, whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. Notice the shift here. In verse 4, it's commandments. In verse 5, it's his word. Uh, That's significant. Some I've met over the years have foolishly tried to limit obedience to certain moral commands, usually a short list that they were okay with. I'm not a homosexual, I don't commit adultery. Uh, you know, I, I haven't stolen, I haven't murdered, I'm good. And they want to limit themselves sometimes also to just what Jesus said. They say, oh, you know, Paul is not Christ. I'm doing, I'm walking the way Christ walked. And they ignore everything Paul says. Uh, they try to make the standard what they want it to be. They try to set the bar at a level that they can approach. I remember when we were down in Florida 
uh, Zachary just barely made the bar, and so one person would let him go on the big slide and one would kind of disapprove. But Anna could not make the bar. She wasn't tall enough for the big slide. You know, people look at Christ that way, at God like that. And I want to set the bar where I can be okay. Not realizing that the bar is infinitely high and the only way we're okay is by confessing our sins and being forgiven in the blood of Christ, cleansed by the blood of Christ. Their attempts to reject the rest of Scripture really fall apart pretty quickly if you actually look at what Jesus taught. Now think about what he says. He sets a bar higher than anyone else can reach. You know, just even the Sermon on the Mount, if that were the extent of the religion you're willing to accept. You know, you sh- you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery, Matthew 5:27 and following. But I say everyone who looks at a woman lust- with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in her heart. You know, what man or woman can say they've never looked at somebody lustfully? Uh, seriously, people. You want to say, I'm good because I, I ignore Paul and I just follow Jesus? Well, Jesus' standard is pretty harsh. Uh, verse 21. I got these in the wrong order. You've heard it said of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Now, Jesus expands upon the commandments to show us that we may, like the rich young ruler, think, oh, I've done these since my youth. But like him, it's only in our minds. Jesus, in his earthly ministry, spoke in parables, spoke in veiled speech. And that gives people some comfort that they're good enough. And then you get into the New Testament era where he's now speaking through the Spirit of Christ, through the Holy Spirit, in the apostles and in the other authors of Scripture. And he's speaking much more plainly and clearly. And we know that all Scripture is God-breathed. 2 Timothy 3.16, that the prophetic word come about not because of the prophet's desire, but they spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. We have Christ's word revealed to us in Scripture, and I think that's why John moves from commandments to his word to include the all of Scripture, Uh, not just moral teachings, as some say, not just the ones that are easy for me, Now, remember, obedience can really come in two forms. The obedience from the heart and the obedience like the Pharisees had. Uh, They obeyed the rules they liked and ignored the rules they didn't like, and they made up their own rules that other people wouldn't follow so that they could be confident that they were better. that's, That's not workable when we're talking about walking as he walks and keeping his word. We're keeping his whole word, all of it. And Jesus himself taught the necessity of obedience everywhere and equated it to love of the love of God and the love of Christ. Uh, John chapter 14. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he is the one who loves me. By this my Father is glorified. Chapter 15. You bear much fruit and prove, therefore prove to be my disciples. How do you get to be his disciples? Not by producing fruit, but the disciples are proven by the fruit. Being made disciples comes first, salvation, 
and then they start producing fruit because they have that new heart and that desire to obey. Uh, Luke records this. He says, why do you call me Lord, Lord? Luke 6, 46 and following. And do not do what I tell you. Why do you say you're a Christian and don't obey me? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I'll show you what he is like. A man building his house who dug deep and laid a foundation on rock. And then when the flood arose and the stream broke against that house, it could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like the man who built his house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, it immediately fell, and the ruin of that house was great. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, he says. Makes me think of Matthew 7, 21 and following. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. In other words, the test of salvation is not saying, Lord, not saying Jesus is my Savior, not saying the sinner's prayer, but the test of salvation is that you're leading that new life, that you're doing the will of God the Father. It says, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not do this and that and the other thing? And I will say, away from me, I never knew you. All of those verses I quoted earlier about that transition of our old life to our new life, being taken from the kingdom of Satan to the kingdom of God, having the old self cast off and the new self put on, being renewed in God's image. (coughs) Those are all things that start with our salvation and prove that we are saved. They do not cause salvation. They are the evidence of salvation. Seeing a puddle on the ground does not make it rain. Seeing a puddle on the ground shows that it did rain. The new life that we live shows that God has worked in our heart. That's, I think, the point we're trying to make. So in a nutshell, if you disobey or reject the commandments of Scripture, which many today are doing, or the teachings of Scripture, all of it, You you hear people saying, well, I don't believe in a God who's going to send people to hell. And they teach annihilationism. Now, this is covering them as well as the ones who say, you know, I think if culture says homosexuality is good, then it's good. If culture does this or that, it's good. We're talking about more than just the commandments of God, but all of the teaching of God. And if they reject those things, they're really rejecting God, and they don't know him. It's that pure and that simple and that firm, I think, here in John. If you don't like what God has to say, you don't know him. There's a passage in the end of Joshua where Joshua has finished the covenant renewal ceremony, and he says, if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, then choose this day whom you will serve, the gods of the locals or the gods of Egypt, to summarize. But if it seems evil to you, you know, many people look at scripture, they say they're Christians, but they don't like what they find in it and they don't obey it and they don't accept people who teach those things and they don't accept people who want to obey it and they don't live their life according to it. If you don't walk as Jesus walked, if you don't live as he lived, if they don't do what he has commanded throughout all of scripture, then you don't know him is what he, John says. Whoever abides in him ought to walk in the way he walked. 
Now, this passage is a somewhat classic chiasm where it begins and ends with the same thing, and the middle is the real strong point that we've been talking about. But again, he comes back to this idea that if we don't abide in him, whoever abides in him at the walk as he walk, if we don't abide in him, we don't know him. What does it mean to abide in him? Well, we read, we read some passages in First John or in John 14 and 15. The beginning of John 15, the first few verses. I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch that does not bear fruit he takes away and every branch that bears fruit he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit in itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. He's talking about salvation. Abiding in him means being saved. Not abiding in him means damned, being thrown into the fire. And so (coughs) it's really talking about what it means to be a Christian. If you want to be a Christian, if you want to be part of Christ, you should be walking the way he walks. Now, I remember the um, what would Jesus do thing that went on years ago. A lot of problems with that. My first one was, well, Jesus was God, so he did some things I'm not supposed to do. And he, he was he was worshipped. He sought that worship. He did miracles that I can't do. Uh, I think it's better to say, what does Jesus want me to do? He wants me in the here in this passage to walk as he walked in keeping the commandments of God. The Bible tells us that he always did what pleased God. In him there was no sin. That's really the goal and the desire to walk as Scripture teaches us. Not as men teach us, not as society teaches us, not as our heart desires, but as Scripture tells us. Many a time we come to Scripture and it's the opposite of what we believe, or what we want to believe anyway, or what we've known our whole life. The idea in this passage in John is that we acknowledge that Scripture is right, I am wrong. Christ is right, I am wrong. And we try to live our life according to him as best we can, striving for perfection, but understanding that perfection will come when we reach heaven and not before that. And so this passage really, it helps us with our assurance of faith. Do I live a perfect life? Well, I don't know about you, but I can guarantee far from it much further than I want to be some days. Do I still have assurance of salvation? Yes, because I hate my sin. I confess my sin. I seek to do what's right. I go in tears and sackcloth and ashes before God, dealing with those issues. But I know that my heart, as Paul talks about, wants to be obedient, that from my heart I desire God, desire to please him, And that can give me the confidence then that I am walking with him. Anyway, a wonderful test. 
If I belong to Christ, I will walk as he walked. If I belong to Christ, I will have a new life that is being transformed. Not that it has been completely perfected and transformed, but is being transformed. And I should be driving to that direction. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you for encouragements from your word. They can be difficult sometimes to understand. Hope, Lord, that this matter is clearer for all of us now and that we do pass that test, that we obey his, your revealed will in Scripture, that when we stumble and fail, that we repent of it and try harder to do what is right before you, that we don't despise you, despise your rules, that we never see it as evil to serve you, to obey you, but we see that as our greatest joy and greatest desire, and in that we can have great comfort and great assurance. And we ask that you would help us then to grow in that assurance and grow stronger in our faith day by day. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.